every company kind of has a DNA. In, in the early days when it's forged and created, it, it takes on the characteristics and personality of the founding people. It takes on characteristics of the market and the business model they need to succeed. And the good companies, because they're figuring out how to take all of those things and use it to our advantage, they tend to pile on and, and put more behind what's working. Yes, do what works. At face value, that's a strategy that makes sense to a lot of great companies. The problem and the subject of today's podcast is that sometimes huge tech trends can come along and they can change everything. I'm talking about major trends like SaaS, mobile, and cloud that have fundamentally shifted every aspect of the way that today's software companies do business. And when trends like these take hold, the singular focus that was once a company's greatest source of strength can suddenly become its Achilles heel. And we know it's true. We've read The Innovator's Dilemma. But that's because becoming intensely focused on one thing can make it incredibly difficult to pivot to another, even when doing so is critical to the survival of a business. On today's show, I'm talking with Justin Lafayette, one of the co-founders here at Georgian Partners. We're going to be talking about four foundational and still emerging to different degrees tech trends, just like SaaS, mobile, and cloud, and others, that we believe will have a dramatic impact on the future of software. In fact, we're so confident in these trends that we only invest in companies that are poised to take advantage of them. In our view, these four trends are so important that any software company that doesn't get its head around them is going to get left behind. Welcome to the Impact Podcast. I'm John Pryor. So, Justin, we're talking today about some definitions and the impact of some major tech trends. And there are obviously many different trends in play at the market right now. So, to start off, would you explain what, what in your mind constitutes this kind of foundational tech trend that we'll be talking about today? You know, tell me about your view of the different types of trends and, and what it might mean, to use a term I've heard you use before, for something to be universal. We're seeing lots of trends playing out in parallel. Some are very, very large and universal, we believe, and some, some might not be as universal, but nevertheless are very important. Things like drone technology, you know, things like Internet of Things, huge trends. But uh, some trends are universal in that if you play the tape out down the road, every single business software category and space is going to have to adopt that trend. I think drone technology is an example of technology that will be profoundly huge as a trend itself and will affect a lot of categories, but not every category. We're, we're kind of interested in, uh, in the ones that, that we think will become universal, where down the road, the leading companies, the successful companies, the winning companies will all have that as part of their DNA. So before we dive into the actual trends, let's stay at this 20,000 foot level. When these kind of trends come along, what are some of the pitfalls that companies run into when they adopt them? And how impactful are these? A very common thing that we see is when one of these trends starts to uh, be understood, the first thing any leadership team, CEO, founder thinks is it's about the technology. You know, the first thing their mind goes to is cloud and SaaS means multi-tenant architecture. Mobile means mobile device management and bring your own device and, and responsive design. Applied analytics means Hadoop and means predictive analytic engines and, and the technology stack. The hard part is really realizing that to do it right, it, it always ends up being all parts of the business model. In the case of cloud and SaaS, it was pricing model. It was uh, how you sell, how you support, how you partner with other companies that are in the cloud. Uh, ultimately, how you raise money and how you measure and financially run your business. 
know, in the case of applied analytics, it involves new types of people and skill sets that they've often never dealt with, data scientists um, that are hard to attract, hard to find. They don't fit in engineering organizations the way um, software engineers uh, like to work and think about deliverables. It introduces new pricing models. It introduces issues around the rights to use data. Um, every A lot of companies, first thing they do is try and go and change your contracts so they have the right to use data any way they want. And then they realize that customers are uncomfortable with that unless they know what's in it for them, unless you've earned trust. So when you look back and you see the companies that have done it best, you realize they changed almost everything about how they run a business in order to do it right. So you've already touched on our first trend, which is applied analytics and the impact it has across an entire business. And of course, that's something we've been talking about since day one here at Georgian Partners. But I think it would be helpful if you talk about why it became such an anchor for GP and more importantly for our portfolio of companies. And even give me a little quick overview of, of what it is from your perspective. And when we started Georgian, the, the trend that we saw coming back in 2008 to 2010 timeframe was that uh, some industry verticals uh, were already proving that you could take very differentiated data sets that were created through the day-to-day business of a, of a solution and use it to create brand new uh, offerings, brand new ways to provide value to a marketplace driven off analytics. Google was certainly a fantastic early example of this in the advertising world, taking search intent information to drive pricing and optimization in advertising. Uh, Amazon you know, proved it out fairly early in uh, e-commerce. There are great uh, cybersecurity examples of it. But uh, when we started looking at, at uh, how we could be valuable in, in the investment marketplace, the trend we saw was that uh, applied analytics, as we came to call it, was going to be something that would affect all categories. The way if you look back, uh, you know, mobile and uh, the cloud and the web uh, had a similar effect. I think it would be very interesting if you could connect the dots backwards a bit and give us your view as to the origins and the value of applied analytics. Well, I think applied analytics is a, is a trend that was born out of uh, on the backs of some of these earlier fundamental changes. The cloud was, as a trend, had a side effect, I think, compared to what people originally thought it was about, you know, which is about a, a lower economic price to deliver a value proposition, to deliver a service. But by, for the first time, aggregating all the customers' data in one place, it made it possible to to look at that data as an aggregated set of value. Uh, when you sold software on-premise and it got installed, you never saw what happened to the data. There were a few examples that have been around for a long time of companies that were aggregating data. Entire businesses like Thomson Reuters were built off of that. But they, they deliberately went out and said, we're going to buy or, or, or scrape the data. The cloud said every single type of business software category was suddenly aggregating all the data exhaust, all the transaction, all the metadata, everything in one place that you can get your hands on. And that, that, that opened the door to applied analytics. Okay. So in your view, Justin, what's the key to using data effectively and, and getting applied analytics right? The best companies and how they do it right is they, they effectively figure out what value proposition they can drive out of that data, what insight they, they can create, how valuable that is, and how many times they can deliver it back into a customer's hands. And then they, they go and they, have, they do a second thing is they get trust. So they, they create an environment of how that data is going to be handled and managed um, that they can demonstrate and prove that they're only going to use the data in the way that they say. Someone's customer list isn't going to be sold to somebody else. Somebody's not going to be able to see their competitor's data and vice versa. Uh, and if they go with those two things to their customer base and they say, this is why you can trust us with this data and how we're going to prove and continue to prove that trust. 
And then here's what's in it for you. Here's the value I can create for you. And it's value that you could never create on your own because you, you'll never be able to get an entire marketplace's data. They'll let you do incredible things with it. Wow. Well, that was a good primer on applied analytics. But in the meantime, now we've developed three more thesis areas around other foundational trends that we think are equally important and will be equally impactful. So let's go through them one at a time. And let's start with artificial intelligence. What can you tell me about that? And perhaps help us all understand why now? But artificial intelligence has been around for a long time. Most of the algorithms and the things that, you know, the technological aspects of how it's done have been well understood for a long time. But these earlier trends have made it possible to finally become widely adopted and important and, and real, if you like. And, and one of those is the, the scale of the data that's available. Both, both the raw data and the training data, like enough outcomes are known, positive and negative, that can be used to train algorithms on immense sets of data. Artificial intelligence requires huge amounts of, of, of data. And that's, that's now possible because of the cloud, because of applied analytics. And, and so it's unleashed, you know, potential of something that's been there for decades. Can you describe a bit more how you like to think about AI? It's a very complicated topic. It's, it's fraught with syntax, debates, and arguments about what all the, the different subgenres, if you like, mean. But I think the simplest way we like to think about it is... If we, we look at what it takes a company to create an applied analytics solution where people are effectively testing hypotheses about algorithms and analytics and what they might produce and then checking them and going back and iterating, you know, it's, it's labor-intensive and it's people-intensive. And so there's only so much you can do in a given, given period of time. Um, and in a sense, all, all forms of analytics involve a lot of iterative testing of, of pieces and looking for patterns in, in data. To, to us, I think the simplistic way of thinking about artificial intelligence is it's just the, the automation of that where uh, the software itself is creating the hypothesis and testing it and iterating uh, and taking action and see what, seeing what happens. And software can do that at incredible speed and it can do it in incredible variations and it can do it in ways that people don't think. People like to think in terms of human terms of A causes B because I know what A is in the real world and I know what B is in the real world and I know how they behave. Whereas artificial intelligence, and again, a catch-all term across a lot of different techniques, is effectively saying is we don't have to understand everything about that and apply human logic to it. We're just going to test everything. And if you can test everything, then we'll learn and we'll behave more like people or we'll choose to behave like people when it, when it makes sense. But in, we'll also be free to, to try a lot of things that people would never try and do it very fast and do it uh, and learn very, very quickly. So it will, you know, it's effectively an accelerant to analytic optimization to say you're, you're freed from the limitations of, of, what, of what people have. I have to say how interesting this is to me and how it's this data now that's driving the creation of an algorithm. And it's finally no longer counterintuitive to me from when I was a young programmer. Uh, but let's look ahead. Do you think this will ever reach a point where we'll achieve the equivalence of human intelligence? I think that there is lots of things happening in parallel. I think ultimately what we would consider human intelligence is a goal that a lot of people are working on. And I don't really have a doubt that that will be achieved at some point. I think from a pragmatic standpoint, we would look at a lot of the values being created in artificial intelligence now as fairly narrow, context-sensitive application of this technology. Very good. Okay, so... I'd like to move on now. What I'd like to talk about next is messaging and what its implications are for businesses. 
Yeah, I think messaging is quite a profound thing that has happened right under everyone's noses without everyone realizing how impactful it was going to be. Um, people prefer now to communicate with each other through messaging. I remember when messaging was kind of first taking off and, and people said, well, how is it different than email? Because we can have a series of emails going back and forth. But there's a lot of little subtle ergonomic things about knowing someone's read your message and you know, some of it was driven over technological things like how do you avoid SMS costs and get it under your data plan and all these things evolved. But, but then what happened was when all the people were there and that's when, you know, where, where people wanted to be, the, peop- the, the companies that emerged were running these platforms figured out that a captive audience meant you could start putting more and more things in front of them and allowing them to do more and more things. So in that case, where do you see the opportunities that messaging for business creates and that the business will be able to exploit? So now you see payment rails hooked up to messaging environments. Um, now you see very sophisticated user uh, uh, UX experiences. Uh, you see interesting human dynamics around emojis and short video clips and music being overlaid where it's just enhancing that experience that people want to be there uh, and don't want to leave. And once people don't want to leave that environment, this opportunity has been created where businesses want to be there. Businesses want to interact. And if a business was going to take advantage of that opportunity by saying, well, we will equip a massive call center with people sitting in front of messaging clients on the other end, trying to jump in as people, um, you know, it just wouldn't scale. Uh, It's just not possible to do it that way. So can you talk our listeners through why that's so important and how these ecosystem changes are so relevant to companies and their brands that are thinking about this? So the opportunity has been created is to inject the company's value and capability into that messaging stream, into the conversation uh, automatically. And that is, uh, you know, it's being solved from both ends at the same time. The messaging platform is a huge flurry of announcements in the last six months from all the major messaging platforms. You have example in China, WeChat, who's probably the furthest ahead on this, where they're saying, we will expose all the APIs that drive this. We'll expose our payment capabilities. We will, we will give you context if you want to come into this as a business. We will tell you things about who this person is, what they're about to do, what they have done, what they're like, what they're interested in. Uh, and businesses that are coming out the other way saying, I want to offer support and service to customers there. I want to sell things to people. I want to influence people. And uh, they're automating how they, they do that. But it's, this is uh, an example, again, where it ends up being quite a profound change. Um, if you're relying on a conversation to interact with one of your customers and you're a big brand who's used to having your branding in front of them, your screen design, your logo, and you're now in Facebook's world just communicating through conversational text, uh, you know, companies have to think through things like, what kind of conversation do I want to have? Does a sports team want to have a conversation in a tone and a style the same way as a bank? Probably not. There's a lot of new ground there. Um, there's big overlap with AI. You have to have a certain amount of natural language processing for that not to be stilted, for that to be natural. But you also still have to tie it into all your traditional backend systems that, that power your business and execute those transactions. And so there's a lot of disruption coming from the fusion of those those two things. And the companies that own those messaging platforms are trying to position themselves as the most valuable part of that, as the ones that have all the context and understand everything about who somebody is. And so the threat and the opportunity for for businesses and people who build business software is how does the rest of the world integrate into that and protect themselves and have their own context and engage in that conversation? 
Great. Listen, let's stop there. Let's move on to the last big trend we're focused on here at Georgian Partners, which has to do with putting security first and the breadth of what that means. Can you tell us about that? Security first is the idea of companies will go out and say, we're going to be demonstrably more secure by thinking about security in every aspect of the business model design from the very beginning, from the ground up. So it does involve technology. I mean, many security first companies are, for instance, taking advantage of um, open ledger environments like the blockchain to say that that fundamentally creates a more trusted uh, environment when, when kind of all updates are done everywhere all the time. Uh, but that's, that's not enough. It's not enough to just to, to tackle the problem from a technological standpoint. Um, everyone has, you know, firewalls and, and the fences and the perimeters and the protection to their environment. Security first isn't about, about putting even higher walls up. That, that's a part of it. That's, a, that's, again, part of the table stakes. The security first is, is saying, no, we're going we're gonna to rethink everything about the entire model uh, around security uh, as, a, as a primary focus. That's, that's not you build the solution and then you figure out how to protect it. That's you build the actual code at the time it's being designed and built with security in mind. You choose technologies that you build on and leverage you may have used before or familiar with, but you, you go through that to get a, a demonstrably better technically secure environment. Uh, then you look at the people and you say, you're going to do background checks on everybody who works there. Are you going to separate teams into isolated pods and, and few people know, you know the entire design of something? Uh, it involves insurance and pricing. Um, we've seen uh, you know, a, a newly launched company, Trusona, that we, we are thinking incredibly highly of, who has baked insurance into the pricing model so that it's understood up front that if there's ever a, an issue and a security violation, what the remedy is. You know, that kind of thinking of saying that if every part of the operating model, go-to-market model, is around demonstrating demonstrably better security, then you have a an incredibly advantageous position, even in a market that may be something that everybody says they already have one. And uh, that's, that's a lot of new challenges. How do you sell that? How do you position that? What's it worth from a pricing standpoint to be able to demonstrate that? How do you partner with other firms who aren't up to your level of security first stance? Do you choose not to partner with them? Do you only look for other security first companies to integrate with? Um, so it's, you know, it's again, like the theme we've been talking about, it's an entire business model commitment and business model change and not just a technological consideration. I'm glad you mentioned Trusona. I want to put in a quick plug for our Impact Podcast, episode 17 with Ori Eisen, who is the CEO of Trusona. It'll do a lot to reinforce your point about how this has to be a company-wide initiative. And again, as you say, it's not about just the VP of engineering or the CTO. This really has to happen at the CEO level, right? Yes, that's, that's absolutely the case. And uh, it has to be something where every member of the executive team feels the responsibility to start with everything that they think about and do a security first stance and then execute to back that up and prove it. Do you think companies will eventually evolve to the point where security first is so baked into what they do that it becomes part of their marketing message? Could it be that much of a differentiator? Oh, absolutely. That is a core part of how a company, you know, why a company would do it and why, how they take advantage of it is to make it part of what they stick out there and propose to the marketplace and say, this is why we're different, why we're, we're valuable. Justin Lafayette, thank you so much for being with us here today and giving everyone an overview of the four key tech trends that we believe are redefining the software industry and driving the impact that we're looking to affect in our portfolio companies. More to come on all these thesis areas in future podcasts. Again, as always, thanks everyone for listening. For the Impact Podcast, I'm John Pryor.